Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And I am your other co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And we have come together today to discuss a poem. A poem? A poem. I say a poem. He says a poem, and he means it. I sure do. We are back to our regular format where we read the poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. After a brief departure at the end of Poetry Month 2019 to do a special series on haiku, if you're interested in that, you can check it out. It's the seven episodes before this one. But today we are doing what we always do, and we're talking about a poem called Alone I Stare Into the Frost's White Face by Usip Mendelstam. And before we dive into that, a quick... No longer desperate plea, just a friendly reminder from us to you that you can, if you enjoy what we do here, head over to Apple Podcasts or the iTunes Store, as it's also known, and leave us a rating and review. And those ratings and reviews help us hop up those mystical algorithms that govern life on Al Gore's internet. And uh, we really appreciate them. And they're great. They make us feel good and they help more people find the podcast. So all in all, A plus stuff. Go do it. Yeah. Connor cuts to the heart of the matter as none other can. Just uh Do it. As as the if if we could quote uh Emperor Palpatine from Star Wars, the the, the prequels, the finest quote from those prequels. Uh he says do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pretty sure there's a 10 hour loop of that on YouTube. But lest we get lost in uh, in a haze of space wizards and, and lightsaber duels and lands far, far away in, in other galaxies, Asit Mandelstam and his poem. It's interesting. This is following our haiku week. Very different in a lot of respects. But... It's also a poem in translation, um, so I feel like we're 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 carrying the torch uh, into May, which is the continuation of International Poetry Year. Part of the reason I think I was drawn to this poem is because, as Connor so rightly noted, it is a translation, uh, and we were recently discussing that as relates to haiku specifically, but also a little bit generally about what does it mean to translate poems? What are different techniques that are used to either literally translate the words or to try and translate more of the feeling of the poem than the literal words that were used by the poet in the original language. Asit Mandelstam, quick context on him, I think is also good before we dive right in, but he was a poet in Russia uh, in the early part of the 20th century, and you know what that means, he was in trouble um, because he thought that repressive regimes were a bad idea, and so as a result, those repressive regimes thought that letting him be a free, living, working person was a bad idea. He was imprisoned at two different points. Uh, the first imprisonment led to basically an exile, and this poem actually was written while he was uh, off, exiled. And the reason he was exiled the first time is because he wrote a very scathing poem. He didn't really write it. He recited it because uh, he was afraid to write it down. Uh, it was about Stalin. And word got around. Uh, he wrote it in November of 1933, and it 
compared Stalin's fingers to worms and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, look it up. It's called the Stalin epigram. You can find out more about that. Uh, and that got him sent away. And he kept these notebooks that have a lot of work in them from that period. And this is taken from, from that period shortly before he was then unfortunately imprisoned again. Uh, and he did die in uh, December of 1938 when he was 47 years old uh, in a, a transit camp in Vladivostok. So a very sad end to someone who was very prolific. He wrote not only poems, but also a lot of essays and a lot of literary criticism, all of which, you know, made the, the rounds of the Russian intelligentsia. Uh, so a major loss. Uh, he was also Jewish. He was a, a major loss. So with that, here is Alone I Stare Into the Frost's White Face by Osset Mandelstam, translated by John High. Alone I stare into the frost's white face. It's going nowhere. And I, from nowhere. Everything ironed flat, pleated without a wrinkle. Miraculous, the breathing plain. Meanwhile, the sun squints at this starched poverty. The squint itself consoled, at ease. The tenfold forest almost the same. And snow crunches in the eyes, innocent, like clean bread. Yeah, this poem is so interesting and kind of mysterious to me. I'm curious, in full disclosure, I had not I don't think read any Asset Mandelstam before this. Um, and also just what, you know, it seemed like based on my reading, he wrote, um, he kind of rose to prominence, I think in like 19, the early 1910s, he had a collection called Stone um, that like really vaulted him into the, the, the high levels of the literary scene in Russia. And then you know, continue to write in various ways for the next 20 years um, or whatever. Um, so I'm curious, like, yeah, what about this poem too? sort of drew you in? Definitely that. Yeah. Stone was his first big collection. And he even joked at one point when he was in, I guess, a work camp of some sort. He and these other people were prisoners were tasked with moving stones around. And he joked because he was feeling so ill that his first work was stone and his last work would be stone because he would expire from the exertion. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and I had been aware of Ossip Mandelstam and I've read a few of his things here and there, but had never really spent a ton of time. I'd always like liked his stuff. Uh, but this translation particularly grabbed me, as you said, it has this air of mystery about it where on its surface, it's just kind of like looking at snow maybe, but both the way that it is, it starts out and where the title comes from, I stare into the frost's white face. There's this immediate move to personification that I found interesting. And there's this overwhelming to me sense of threat and familiarity interwoven throughout it that gave me 
an interesting feeling as I was reading through it. And it was one that I wanted to explore more. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, and yeah, I was, um, as you were saying, I feel like um, it's true that it's pretty simple. You know, we, we often do a little play by play at the beginning of each episode. Um, and this play by play would be pretty short in a certain sense. You know, it's, it's made up of two stanzas. Um, each one is four lines. Um, the first stanza, he's by himself, as Jack was saying, he's, he's at a, he's in a tundra, you know, the, the breathing plane, he's looking at the frost, the frost is compared to, or the white plane is compared to like a, a white dress shirt that's been sort of ironed. Um, and then in the second stanza, meanwhile, the sun squints at the starch poverty. He, the sun is looking at the barren landscape uh, as described as consoled or at ease or whatever. Um, and there's a forest. <laughs> and then there's snow that's crunching in his eyes. Um, so, I mean, literally, basically nothing happens except he's looking and then there's also a sun <laughs> in some ways. Um, but I think you're absolutely right that there's like, it's so strange how this scene, which is like in a literal way, pretty simple, uh, is described so strangely. And so uh, there's so many moments that are like loaded with something. This might be, weird way to start but i i was kind of like i read it and i read it again and then i was reading about manostam and then i was reading some other stuff and i was like all right i'm not really um i'm like very intrigued but i'm having like a hard time sort of accessing it kind of because it's kind of like because there's no narrative in some sense um, and it's very short and there's not a lot of, we don't exactly know like much about the speaker. Um, you know, we can load, you know, we can read about the poet's biography and like impose that, which can be useful. Um, and so the way that I started thinking about it a little bit was just like, okay, why is the speaker, or I guess I just had this thought that the way that nature is being described or the scene is being described is in some ways a reflection of how the speaker is feeling about stuff, I guess. Interesting. Um, which is not really that like deep of a point. I feel like that is a common, um, like, the cliche, it was a dark and stormy night, is like, okay, the the nature is giving us a sense of um, the emotional atmosphere or the forebodingness that's going to come in the story. So, um, but it was, it was sort of a way that I could kind of creep in. And in a basic sense, the speaker is like, just so isolated. And kind of like it's this weird thing where i feel like the speaker feels oppressed but it's by like 
so much it's not like a claustrophobia it's like the opposite kind of um and there's just so many interesting like alone the, it begins alone i stare into the frost's white face um it's going nowhere and i from nowhere um that sort of double nowhere is so interesting to me um because a it kind of like situates the speaker in a parallel sense with the the barren plains around him um in it in like the most depressing way possible it also does it in sort of a challenging way because if you're staring into someone's face that's often done only in the form of a challenge you don't sort of walk up to someone friendly and stare in their face it's like this person is alone against the frost and it puts me in mind of uh like when a prison is built with no walls because you don't need them because you can't actually run away because you're in the middle of a desert or something and as we know the arctic and many tundra regions are essentially deserts because of how much or how little precipitation there is they don't look like the sandy deserts we think of but because they don't get a lot of precipitation they qualify um and that's sort of how exile and imprisonment worked in russia where people would be sent away for years and because russia is so massive they would just never people would never hear from them again and they'd just set up new lives out in siberia yeah no it and it really helps knowing that this this poem was written during his exile um you know and during this time i was also reading a little more i mean it seemed like he was kind of just in a horrible mental space and i think he attempted suicide at one point um and when he went back to moscow after his exile and got arrested the second time i think he had been committed into a sanatorium and then was arrested while he was in the sanatorium um so yeah i mean we we have this it's like the barren landscape depending on who you are could look could be seen through any number of lenses um and the fact that you know it's it's being conveyed this way is really interesting um every element of the landscape is also alive at at every turn so the frost's white face great then we get into this breathing plane, which I think is a fascinating way to describe the plane and conjures a lot of different images. Um, and is just like a really interesting turn of phrase. But then you have the sun, which squints. And so everything that he sees is coming alive or is being given life. And I think that adds to that sort of what you were describing. It's oppression without claustrophobia but just everything around him is sort of operating in this living breathing miraculous way that is both clearly intriguing but is always it seems to me a little bit menacing yeah no i think that's exactly right and it's interesting because i love that you mentioned the miraculous and the the breathing plane um the What's interesting is it it's so loaded, but each like thing that's loaded feels like slightly or not even sometimes slightly, but different. 
not in a way that, and sometimes in a way that like I can't quite put together. So we have the frost white's face, it's going nowhere, but then there's this, the plane is sort of described like this shirt, you know, everything is iron flat, pleated without a wrinkle and it's miraculous. You know, I can really picture, I mean, A, it's just a great way of describing like a flat, you know, white snow covered plane as, as like, um, you know, being, being ironed. Um, and this sense of, of, you know, something being, being done to the surface, you know, of the earth, um, but also something, it's just interesting because it's something that you would wear and it's like, um, and then I'm thinking, well, if it's like the, he's staring at the frost's face, then, you know, that's the head. And then I'm getting the shirt with like the torso. And then I'm seeing the breathing as like, you know, coming from that somehow. Um, but it's like oppressive, but miraculous in this kind of austere sort of beauty kind of way. Um, but then it's also formal, maybe in, in the way that the shirt is conveyed. Um, and yeah, and then the, the, the shirt metaphor is continued into the second stanza slightly with the line, meanwhile, the sun squints at this starched poverty. Get that word starched, which I, which I think is like such a nice touch. Um, so, you know, like starching a shirt kind of thing. Um, and, but then he imbues this whole thing again with something else with the word poverty. So suddenly, you know, it's not just huge and flat, but it's, you know, impoverished. It's, there's the nothingness is suddenly like a lack. That also made me think the, the poverty line had me thinking, trying to picture what this was describing, like trying to give myself the actual image of the plane more just because the poverty adds this element where all of a sudden I'm thinking, wait a minute, we're going beyond just description but this is still part of the description. And so what am I seeing? And it made me think like, what is a breathing plane? And I love exactly what you were describing with, you know, if it's a shirt, it goes on over the breathing chest of the earth. You know, that's very evocative, but it's sort of that flat expanse and the gusts of wind that blow intermittently, just clouds of snow. Um, but the poverty element made me think of the way that oftentimes there are little bits of rock or dirt that sort of poke out and are what collect those gusts. And it would be almost like a threadbare shirt that would have those rocky elements poking through. Um, and I liked that this, I just liked that the addition of poverty could add not just conceptually, but also to the literal way that I was thinking about trying to picture a described scene. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, yeah. And it's interesting. I don't know if this is necessarily helpful, but um, like one thing that the poem does, that's kind of interesting that I think probably a, a number of poems that we've discussed is what could be called either like an embedded metaphor or like a submerged metaphor or something. 
Um, so, you know, a metaphor like a, nor a quote unquote normal one would just be if I if, if it was this poem, it would be like the plane, you know, is an ironed dress shirt. Right. So I'm, I'm saying I'm, I have my thing that I want to describe this this plane. And then I have my other thing that's unlike it that I'm saying it is, which is the dress shirt. Um, but there's nowhere in this poem that the that kind of like one to one thing is made explicitly. Rather, the metaphor sort of lies beneath the surface in some in like a an implied way, right? So we don't we don't even have the word shirt, you know, in the poem. As the starch carries the embedded metaphor that was sort of implied in the the first. Um, stanza. I'm sure there's lots of things that you can do with embedded metaphors. Um, embedaphors, if you will. Embedaphors. Wow. All right. To me, the speaker is in like such a close relationship with nature and the kind of force of nature is like so present in a pervasive way. Um, and it maybe like one effect of sort of rendering the plane in the more embedded or submerged or implied way um, sort of creates that pervasive effect more because it's like it's so intense that you don't even have the distance to be like aha i see the plane and it is a starched white shirt um rather it's just like you get to the starched part before you get to this the shirt um it's like everywhere you go the connotations of the metaphor are everywhere you know before the kind of like specific one yeah and i just feel like that really creates that that just kind of really unsettling sense that the poem gives me very well stated <laughs> well thank you <laughs> yeah I, I think it's true and it's it's real because it does sort of lie underneath so much of the poem but if you it's almost like the light is turned off in the room and you're feeling around and you feel the form of something familiar and understand what it is before you turn the light on and at some point that light goes on for you but it's not i don't know that was just what came to mind when you were describing it where it's like it's there you know it's there but you don't see it yet yeah you just keep bumping into it everywhere you go as you were saying yeah oh i like that a lot it's also interesting i was just thinking i like that image of the feeling around in the dark is great yeah that reminds me of of this natalie diaz poem which is called why i hate raisins um and the first line of that is love is a pound of sticky raisins i think um, yes. And it's such a good poem and it's kind of about being a kid and growing up poor on a reservation and hating her mother, um, and not really like understanding what her mother was going through to like provide for her until later. But, um, 
it's interesting because in some ways that poem has kind of the an opposite metaphorical um strategy where the beginning of the poem is like this very explicit love is a pound of sticky raisins and we have like the thing love and then the sticky raisins and then basically the the metaphor is never explicitly brought up again but the raisins recur um and the wonderful effect of that is that as the raisins sort of acquire more complicated meaning um even if they're just being referenced like in a literal way um that sort of serves to complicate the metaphor of of love is a pound of sticky raisins in like the opposite way where i feel like this poem partly it's because he's uh Manostam is comparing like a two sort of physical things together rather than like a big abstract thing like love the merging kind of of those two tactile physical things kind of works on it um like the submerged level whereas if you were like doing a weird implied physical metaphor for love i feel like it would that be hard to pull off yeah one thing that is really interesting sort of that line the starch poverty is really interesting what's kind of funny is that it's the sun that's doing the squinting it's like meanwhile the sun squints at this starched poverty and it's like obviously normally you squint at the sun because the sun is what is bright um but not only is the sun doing the looking it's also doing the squinting um as if the as if the the poverty the starch poverty was so bright that the sun had to squint or something which in some ways makes sense in so far as like the sun like you know snow can get very bright um when the sun is beating snow, down on it snow blindness is a real thing you, yeah. there's you know sunglasses that have been made for centuries by people who lived in super sunny snowy environments yeah yeah absolutely um but then okay so i just want to know what you think because this is where this is the part where the poem goes from like being like weird but sort of in my head comprehensible to taking like a totally new direction which is just these two lines Meanwhile, the sun squints at the starch poverty, the squint itself consoled at ease. What? Okay. <laughs> so, I puzzled over this too. <laughs> yeah. Like it's okay. It's weird enough to be talking about the sun squinting. Not only are we personifying the sun, then we're like personifying the squint of the sun because the squint is what's being consoled or is at ease. And then at ease doesn't make any sense to me because a squint is like the opposite is not a relaxed thing. And then it's like, why is it being consoled? That seems very important to understand. Who's consoling it? Why does looking at starch poverty console it? 
I have a lot of questions. See, this was my initial question to myself, which is when it when the poem says the squint itself consoled at ease, is this an active consolation where someone is consoling the sun or something is consoling the sun that is squinting? Or is it just describing the nature of the squint? So is it saying that the sun is not squinting harshly on this scene? It is not looking down with great intensity in its squint. It's trying to maybe gently squint so as to see better through the frost and the, the snow, which we then very soon after learn crunches in the eyes, which is something I we might want to return to, but the fact that the eyes are not described as either being the staring eyes of the speaker or the squinting eyes of the sun, but this interesting point of unity between the two. Um, but to me, it was, uh, as I squinted at the poem myself and trying out different versions of squinting, <laughs> I thought... I did. I it was real, and I was not in a public place, so no one asked me any nosy questions about my behavior. But no, I just tried squinting in different ways, and was like, "Is there a version of a squint that seems like a consoled squint, like one that it's maybe after he wrote the line, the sun squints at the starched poverty? Maybe he didn't want it to think that it was like an inquisitorial look, or it was, or like not a, a harsh." inquisitorial look but just sort of like huh huh all right so it's like a squint that is instantly uh at ease because it has assessed the situation and said yeah it's cool i don't need to shine any brighter or bring any more heat here this is good it can stay cold and so i in in my head i also linked it a little bit to like is the squint the intensity of the sun's rays perhaps and like the, the possibility that the sun could bring more heat and melt the snow and change the starched poverty into, I don't know, liquid abundance or something. Uh, and the sun sort of squints and is instantly consoled. And either it's then like a more relaxed squinting or the squint disappears entirely. And the sun is like, ah, it's chill, quite literally chill. And I will let it continue to be chill because I've got sun stuff to do oh that's really interesting i think that makes a lot of sense in in the the squint nothing is consoling the squint but it's the nature of the sun squint is that it is a consoled one it is at ease um but made so by what the sun sees in the starched poverty um that makes sense to me or what is unsettling is that even if the sun is consoled, that seems to be like exactly the opposite of what the speaker is feeling. The way you were talking about it, if the sun's like, it's chill, you know, I can leave things be. It's like the speaker is alone staring into the frost's face there's nowhere, he's nowhere. Uh, I guess it's miraculous, but I mean, things are not like, it's not a paradise. And so it's interesting that then the sun comes along as like the other agent, you know, the speaker is the one. I think you're exactly right in talking about the eyes, which we should get to that. But basically looking is the thing that is 
the only actions that are taken are looking, right? Uh, the speaker looks and then the sun looks. Um, and it seems like I would be mad that the sun is at ease because I am not at ease if I'm the speaker. I would be too. And I'm so very glad you brought that up because I have, <laughs> I have a thought on that. Okay. And this is a bit of a stretch, but here we go. So right. our Asit Mandelstam was not a fan of Stalin and his totalitarian regime. I think there is a reading of this where you could see the sun as a totalitarian figure in this scene that has absolute power over what is going on. And in fact, the way that uh, a lot of the repression went on, and this is kind of how it works in most totalitarian regimes that are able to seize power and enforce their will and everything. It happened in Germany is through complicity of the populace. Um, and I think you could possibly see the frost in the absence of the sun warming everything up is just kind of operating however it wants. And it's doing all this nefarious freezing stuff and imposing a kind of starched poverty on the landscape and the speaker. And the sun is there and has the power to put an end to it by shining more brightly or when squinting upon the scene and seeing the injustice that's being done uh, to the plane, this breathing plane that is alive, but is smothered by this snow, uh, though it miraculously breathes on, uh, however flatly ironed the, the frost may try to make it, uh, underneath of that flattening by the frost, there is still something alive and valuable. And the sun squints down, sees that this is going on, sees the injustice, sees the attack of the frost on the, the breathing snow, uh, the frost that our heroic speaker stares into the face of and in some ways stands against, and the sun squints and is instantly consoled and says either not my problem or I'm okay with this or this is cool, I'm fine with it. I, that's my quasi-political reading of the sun's consolation. Um, and I think in either of those instances, you could see the sun as this totalitarian type figure or as perhaps the international community seeing what's going on in Stalin's Russia, seeing the repression that's going on there. And to use a common turn of phrase, turning a blind eye to it. You also have that on the sort of internal level where there's a lot of people who knew about what was going on. And in fact, were collaborators and were turning a blind eye to the violence they were inflicting on their former friends and neighbors when they were reporting them for being bad party members. I like that reading a lot. I have no idea what to make of it. Like, I have no idea. It's, it's one of those things where I wish I could talk to him and see what he was thinking. Me too. Um, but there's or that he'd like written about it at some point. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it makes sense in that because then the other weird part that's like the extension of the central weird part, which is the sun's consolation, is the next line, the tenfold forest, almost the same, which is like suddenly the sun, the, the, the huge forest, which is somewhere near the plain, is like the sun. And I now I'm you know, if, if we're making a simple, like, symbol thing where the sun is the, you know, the Stalinist figurehead, uh, 
the forest is the kind of mass enforcement of such a regime or something, um, which also is consoled or something. Or it is the complacent populace that is equally at ease with repression because it's easier not to do anything and just stand there like a, a wooden forest than to involve yourself in such troubles. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it is interesting. I was reading about him and one part of the Soviet regime was that art and artists were kind of coerced and compelled uh, to write or make art that was, you know, at the very least benign and probably at least like a kind of propaganda or supporting of a kind of vision um, that, you know, that the state would want. And Mandelstam was like very opposed to that, uh, which obviously got him in a lot of trouble. And interestingly, what I was reading is that, you know, one, I mean, it's so funny because I, it's like, so he was, you know, one big thing of the Soviet regime from my very cursory knowledge is that the collective and, you know, the the sort of the masses, that was like an important part of the Soviet identity that like we're all working as a collective unit. And that one way that Mandelstam's poetry resisted it, um, even when it wasn't sort of like explicitly being like, fuck you, Stalin, was which he did have poems <laughs> that we talked about <laughs> that were fuck you Stalin was they just <laughs> yeah. they just emphasized a kind of individualist or humanist way of being in the world um, which this poem is doing also where you know the speaker is just a to in total isolation I mean it's a bleak vision but it's the speaker is re you know resolutely maybe he's from nowhere but he's he's alone and discreet i feel absolutely i that's fascinating that adds another layer to a connection that i sort of made one of the first times i read through the poem which is one of the things that i thought of because of the last line and the snow crunches in the eyes innocent like clean bread I had a lot of thoughts about that but one of it was that you have the frost crunching in the eyes it's no longer an external element that's being viewed or stared at but it's now in the eyes and so naturally i was thinking of our old power ralph waldo emerson and his invisible eye uh because that's not just an eye that reflects but an eye through which nature moves and the famous quote from ralph waldo emerson i became a transparent eyeball i am nothing i see all the currents of the universal being circulate through me, I am part or parcel of God. Um, which I felt was going on a little bit here, not necessarily the sort of divine element of that, but the idea that you could be an individual in nature through which nature was moving in an important symbolic way. I am loving where this is going. So this might be time to talk about the fact that this is a translation. Yes, um, it is. I found a few other translations of this poem worthy of note. Um, other ways that this last line was rendered. 
Um, and snow crackling in my eye, like new bread, blemishless. Then there's this other one. Uh, and with the innocence of fresh bread, snow crunches in the eyes. Um, and then I found another one that was, and snow crunches in my eyes, sinless as fresh bread. Um, yeah. The difference between fresh and new bread and the phrasing of clean bread is interesting to me because both because poverty is mentioned earlier and because of what I know about what was done, especially during the Second World War, which would post-date the writing of this, but what I imagine was being done in work camps, which is that a lot of sawdust was added to bread, uh, which would make it pretty unclean. Uh, even if it was fresh baked and new. Yeah. And clean also connects a little more to innocent or sinless in that it's not new or fresh. It's like not unpure or what, or not dirty. Un untainted. Yeah. Um, and, but it's interesting because like if it's, if you're thinking about the the Judeo-Christian religious or divine aspect of it, um, like sinless gets it that way more, but innocent also does have that um, in it. Um, Definitely. Can I read you just the entire Google Translate? I really wish you would. Okay. Um, in the face of frost, I look alone. He is nowhere, I am nowhere. And everything ironed, wrinkle-free, plains, breathable, miracle. And the sun squints in starvation, poverty. His squint is calm and comforted. Ten-digit forests are almost. And the snow crunches in the eyes like pure bread is sinless. Very interesting. Probably less grammatical work has been done on that to conform to English conventions. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, but by and large, pretty similar to this translation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is impressive because it, it reads pretty like, like some poems I read that are in translation and I'm like, this is obviously translated. Um, and this one, there's a little bit that's kind of weird, but nothing super weird. So, uh, yeah, it's an impressive translation, I think. It what one thing that's so difficult about this poem, I think, is like how many places it goes in such a short amount of time. It's like so compact, and it's hard for me to go back to the beginning of the poem and I'm like alone. I stare into the frost white face, and I'm like. Okay, I don't know how we get from here to and snow crunches in the eyes, innocent like clean bread. Because they just seem like such different um, ways of thinking about the snow and the frost. The last kind of thought that I have, which sort of goes back to the beginning of what I was saying, is like the way that I started to access it is just trying to like, 
like there's a there's a way that I would read this and be like, okay, and and I don't usually like I try to resist this, but like um part of me wants to go into puzzle solving mode with this poem and like you know it's got this kind of logical or symbolic code that i have to un unlock um which i don't like that's how i feel like poetry is taught so often incorrectly but still some poems actually at least if you do that, it's a rewarding thing, not like it's the only way to do it. But I feel like this one, to think of it as a poem that has a kind of meaning per se that one can extract seems to be a more of a fruitless endeavor. But when I try to just like think of what the speaker is feeling, if I'm just like, okay, the speaker is just in this place and is looking around and this is what they're thinking and they're saying. That seems to be the way I can best get at it because I can just see how, I mean, this is just a general point, but just like when you're moving through the world, like you have so many different emotions or thoughts or feelings that are happening like one after the other. Um, and some of them are contradictory. I can just see how um, that level of fraughtness, that all of these different charges, these different feelings that are being evoked by the way that the landscape is being described um, as like at once something confrontational in the frost face, um, an austere beauty, um, something pressed down but living. Yeah, I can just see how someone could be encountering the landscape and especially given where the poet is in the time of their life, sort of feeling all these things at the same time and kind of like recording it like sensation by sensation. Um, and it may not like add up to a thesis about something or something with a kind of x meaning but like an accumulation of experiences so when i sort of take off my sherlock holmes glasses uh and the and hat do you have the hat i i do have the hat i've taken the hat off as well what about the uh, pipe is it still clenched between your holmesian teeth or yeah, is that <laughs> i keep the pipe because i like the pipe but then yeah then i can start to just sort of like Instead of get the poem, I can kind of feel with the poem, if that makes sense. I don't know. No, I think that's a great point. And I'm really glad you brought it up because I think the danger, the dangerous road you could go down with some of the readings that I was starting to talk about is like trying to go through from the beginning and just be like, okay, the frost here is clearly a metaphor for this. And, and this stands in for that. And, and this is a poem about his, you know, political experience or, you know, any number of the the things we were discussing along the way. And you're so right that this is such an experiential poem. And part of what it does really well is evocatively describe the scene. Yeah. Like, I feel like I can see it as a kind of like the beginning of a movie that's going to go in a lot of di different directions, but it's kind of the, the, the panning landscape shot of this, you know, tundra 
this is like a 30 second tracking shot um, of something. <laughs> no, I totally agree. And I love that way of describing it because it is so visual. Ah, shall we verbally experience that tracking shot and read the poem again? I think we gotta. Sounds good. Alone, I stare into the frost's white face by Ossip Mandelstam. Translated by John High. Alone, I stare into the frost's white face. It's going nowhere, and I from nowhere. Everything ironed flat, pleated without a wrinkle. Miraculous, the breathing plain. Meanwhile, the sun squints at this starched poverty. The squint itself consoled, at ease. The tenfold forest almost the same, and snow crunches in the eyes, innocent, like clean bread. Hey everybody, this is Jack again. Thank you so much for listening. This is the part of the show where we tell you all the different ways you can get in touch with us because we love to hear from you. If you have ideas for future episodes, comments on this or any of our past episodes, different readings of poems than the ones that we offered, we want to hear it. Uh, the fastest and easiest way to get in touch with us is on Twitter. The show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. And Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also get in touch with us via email if you have lengthier thoughts. Our email address is closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. And of course, the very best way to stay up to date on the latest close talking happenings is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Uh, we're also available, in addition to iTunes, on Stitcher and SoundCloud. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again next time.